Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined today by my MMU journalism colleague, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. We're going to split the podcast in two this week to look at issues around political adverts on Facebook, which appear to be running amok as we record this in the middle of what Channel 4 News last night, hashtag the Brexit mayhem. But we'll also look into a decision by a court in Australia to award substantial damages to a journalist at the Age newspaper after she suffered post-traumatic stress from covering a series of harrowing criminal court cases. But before we get to that, Dave, um, just a couple of quick updates on some stories that we've been looking at this week. Um, Regular listeners will know that last week we looked at the High Court ruling not to Mm -hmm. lift the global injunction on identifying James Bulger's killer, John Venables. Well, just yesterday, the Brookside and shameless actor Tina Malone was fined £10,000 and received a suspended prison sentence after she admitted contempt of court for posting an image on Facebook last year, which was said to have included a picture of Venables together with his new name. Mm. So although we said last week that we might have had the last word in St. And- in Sir no. Andrew McFarlane's <laughs> ruling against the global ban... It's probably not going to be the last time that we hear about breaches of the ban. In no, court, I, I don't think it? so. In fact, interesting, this actually predates, I think the tweet was some, sometime last year. Yeah. Um, but I think actually what people should take out of this is the fact that, you know, she was quite lucky to escape a prison sentence. Yeah. And it was only her, you know, people might think, gosh, £10,000 plus an eight-month suspended sentence. Yes, it is pretty heavy sentencing, but actually, you know... Um, Jailing was on the cards, and uh, the judge made a point of saying, listen, because of your personal circumstances, you know, she cursed for a five-year-old child, apparently, and her mother, it, it would have been far more serious. So um, this is not something to be taken uh, taken lightly. And, and the other thing to remember is, you know, for people out there who are not, like ourselves, trained journalists or our students, is that, you know, her defence was effectively... Gosh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I, you know, and that would be the default position, I think, of, of some people. You know, hopefully a lot of people now... At this stage, do know you can't do that kind of thing. But again, no defence, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a, this is a serious uh, breach, uh, and, and future people should be um, be wary. Yeah, yeah. And this won't be the last time, probably, that we'll be looking at one of these global bans because mm-hmm. there is another one that's going through through the courts, um, a, a, a terrorism case, uh-huh. and uh, that's that's being heard at the moment. But we're not. I'm not sure when uh-huh. that's going to going to come out but we will certainly keep an eye yeah. on that you know even with you know social media it, it just shows that it, there is regulation to uh prevent this kind of thing yeah yeah so a reminder you're listening to bang to rights from the mmu journalism unit you can tweet us at rights bang with any comments or suggestions but as we're recording this week's episode there's been a spate of facebook adverts dropping into people's news feeds apparently produced by a pro-brexit group britain's future it said that this group spent more on political advertising in 2019 than any other organisation. Our colleague Ember Shember Critchley has been following the story. In the run-up to the no-deal votes this week, there has been quite a significant Facebook campaign run by Britain's Future, which is currently fronted by a Manchester-based screenwriter called Tim Dawson. And uh, they've had quite an extraordinary amount of money um, donated to them uh, they claim through friends of the organization but there is no accountability and this 340,000 which far outstrips the people's vote spending has been directed at micro-targeting adverts in a very similar way that we've seen before Um, and these have been using the faces of MPs targeted to constituencies um, pushing people to pressure MPs to push for a no-deal Brexit. 
And so, ironically, possibly one of the MPs involved is Joe Stevens, who sits on the on the DCMS committee, who's been tackling exactly this issue, hasn't she? She has, and it's a good job that she has. It is a persistent issue. Um, one of the most concerning things and a theme that keeps coming up is that this is dark money. We don't know where this campaign money has come from. There are no accounts provided by Britain's Future. Um, and this sort of targeting is mostly unseen by wider audiences because it is directly on people's individual news feeds. And although Facebook have to some extent, cleaned up their act in terms of vetting um, the backgrounds of people putting up these adverts. Um, So we assume that a UK passport has been seen. We still don't know what it is about. I think the other issue is, is that although this is happening outside of a typical election campaign where there is very tight control of spending for different political campaigns. This is at a crucial period in our democracy, which is moving on day by day in how it may spin out. And so we're seeing extraordinary amounts of money still being spent in a very shadowy manner directly to people's timelines. It's it's interesting and I guess quite worrying in response to Mark Zuckerberg's statement last week that Facebook was going to go private essentially, that they were going to use um, encrypted apps and uh, and so on more. In response to that, Damien Collins, who's the chair of the DCMS committee, a colleague of Joe Stevens, um, said, this is this is quite worrying that it, a lot of this stuff will continue, but it will be out of sight and we won't be able to control it, we won't be able to see it, but this micro-targeting of fake adverts will, will continue. Uh, None of this is a surprise, you know, as we led up to the GDPR legislation. Facebook were putting significant pressure on individual EU states on turning decision makers' opinions to try and get them to block GDPR because, um, and they did this with close friendship with the then uh, Irish Prime Minister, uh, facilitating his support for for widespread data use. And they openly admitted that this sort of legislation and legislation to curb this sort of spending and behaviour significantly affected Facebook's profitability. And ultimately, it all comes down to money. They have no interest in uh, what is right for um, healthy democracies. Coming back to the question of money, what's, what's Tim Dawson been saying about this then? What's his response to it? Um, Very little. Uh, He has been approached for uh, comment by BuzzFeed and The Guardian, who have been covering the story this week, and he's gone strangely quiet. Uh, He's not responding to anything, although he still is continuing to um, support a no-deal position openly on his Twitter. Okay, well, we may come back to this, but for now, Ellie, thanks very much indeed. So just before we came on air this afternoon, I, we spoke to the Bristol Central MP, Joe Stevens and asked her if she's surprised that she's been the subject of some of these Britain's future adverts. It amuses me more than anything else because obviously there is a significant amount of money being spent by this pro-Brexit group doing micro-targeting of advertising. Well, you know, micro-targeting my constituents in Cardiff Central, of whom in 2016 nearly 70% of them voted to remain and all the polling since 2016 shows that that's now over 80% would uh, vote remain in another referendum. The, The they're wasting their money. <laughs> you know, the constituents getting in touch with me, 95% of them now are writing to me or contacting me to say, 
can you stop Brexit? So it's not working. It's having the opposite effect. And have you been uh, have you been across any other constituencies where this is happening? Yes. I mean, I'm aware that they have targeted many uh, Labour MPs seats, both leave and remain seats, predominantly leave, but some remain as well. So um, so we know that this is widespread advertising um, that's going on across the country. Now, it's something that, that your inquiry at the DCMS committee, you'd looked into, I guess, the, the kind of public Facebook advertising. But the, there, there is a concern, I think, certainly from the chair of the committee, Damien Collins, was um, said earlier this week, or a big pardon, last week, that he's concerned that Mark Zuckerberg wants to take some of this stuff sort of underground, if you like, by using encrypted apps on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, we raised this. First of all, we were in Washington and New York at the start of uh, 2017 as part of our uh, disinformation and fake news inquiry. And we took evidence from Facebook uh, in Washington. And it was that was the first point at which they had it appeared to us they'd even thought about the risks of their platform um, and political advertising that they were prepared to admit publicly. So we were told, I think in that evidence session in January 2017, that they were looking at changing their rules on political advertising. We then had, um, post the uh, publication of our interim report, um, but before we published our final report a few weeks ago, we had Facebook in again. We had Richard Allen, one of their vice presidents, because yeah. obviously Mark Zuckerberg refused to come yeah, much several busy. times. Much too busy to come and Much talk too to busy. So we had to empty chair him. Um, they sent Richard Allen instead. And at that point, they had just introduced these new rules, um, which they were lauding about um, giving information to people about political advertising, where it was coming from. Um, but we know, we knew almost immediately that these new rules that they'd introduced were no good. Um, so there's much more advertising now going underground, dark dark ads, as they call it. You know, there's been stuff in our, our report about mainstream network, which were, again, targeting individuals and um, groups of people in particular areas individually so that no one else knows that they're being, you know who's seeing this advert and what and who's being targeted to get them to contact their MPs and to you know it's all pro brexit stuff now whether or not the the various resolutions and, and amendments going through the house of commons this evening whether or not there is mm -hmm. a vote for a, a second referendum there is a, there is a quite a serious issue isn't there about um, advertising, political advertising being used in this way, whether we're in an election period or, or not? Absolutely. Um, it's become very, very clear that effectively, you know, this is a Wild West area of election and referenda campaigning because all our electoral laws that cover elections and referenda were made pre the digital era. So they're completely unfit for purpose. And we make a number of recommendations in our two reports about what we think should happen. Um, but we make a specific um, recommendation about transparency requirements on tech companies to make sure that paid for political advertising, and that's not just party political advertising, but political advertising like the things we've just been talking about, um, are Public, publicly accessible, they're clear, you can search and find them, um, and there's identification of the source of the advert. So who uploaded it, who paid for it, and the country of origin. Because what we did find out in our inquiry is that obviously um, Facebook and other platforms were being used by 
foreign agents in order to influence elections and referenda, both in the UK, but also um, in America. Hi, Joe. Dave here. Um, it's interesting, there was, there was a piece by Mark Zuckerberg yesterday, which he, a 3,000-word blog, apparently, he, he talked about how he wanted to change, you know, Facebook from a, uh, a town square conversation to one in, in your living room. And actually, that, that mm-hmm. move towards privacy, that's interesting, isn't it, where um, this kind of ties in, where, you know, the targeting of people uh, on a very individual level. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you see that as, as a, obviously, a... a that's in your sights as politicians to address that uh, possible danger. Yes, and we're really concerned, um, although our inquiry has finished, we're still being sent evidence. And so we will still be looking at this issue over a period of time, because obviously, you know, things are happening pretty much every week on it. Um, the, The problem, I think, for Facebook and the problem for Mark Zuckerberg particularly is that trust has broken down Mm. so we cannot trust facebook anymore because of what has gone on in terms of data breaches um and the things that we discovered in our inquiry and also the um investigative journalism you know really Uh superb investigative journalism that went on um to disclose what had been happening in relation to cambridge analytica Mm. so mark zuckerberg now is thinking about, uh, you know, this sort of thing you talked about where everything is private, um, but he's still not saying what role Facebook is playing with that in terms of what what Facebook is doing with that data. Um, And this is all about capture of data because that's what Facebook's business model is. The more data they have, the more advertising they can sell, the more money they make. Joe, I know you, you, you've got to go, but one last question, really. Um, you, you said in the report, uh, and you've recommended to the government that they should take action, A, on on kind of controlling Facebook, but also the issue about um, directed political advertising. Now, yeah. um, the government has its plate full with other business at the moment, but do you think, um, what, what are the chances of, of the government actually taking some action on this? Because you, you also referred in the report um, a couple of weeks back to what's going on in France and Germany. Yeah, well, we are um, still working with other parliaments. So we had an international grand committee with um, representatives of 14 parliaments representing nearly 500 million people. Um, So we're still working with them. The government will have to formally respond to our report um, probably by the middle of April. And we're also waiting um, publication of the online harms white paper. So we will hope to see in that white paper the taking up by the government of our recommendations because when we published our interim report we had a very poor response from government they only responded to about i think it was eight of the 40 recommendations something like that so this time we want some proper responses we want to hear about proper regulation whether that's on a uk basis or working with um other jurisdictions um but certainly self-regulation cannot be allowed to continue because we've you know it's been shown that that doesn't work so it is time for there to be some regulation on tech companies and that's um both in relation to beefed up powers for our information commissioner office and our electoral commission and heavier sanctions um but also the competitions and market element of um the tech companies because at the moment it seems as if what applies to every other sector every other industry in terms of competition law is not being applied to big tech okay joe stevens thanks very much indeed for coming on bank to rights thanks a lot 
My pleasure. Thank you. So that, that's Jo Stevens. Thanks very mm. much indeed to, to her for spending some time to come on. Um, for her and lots and lots of other yeah, MPs. Very, it's an very extremely busy, a busy time. But yeah, very interesting to hear that from some of the inside discussions that are going on there inside the DCMS committee and why they got to the conclusions that they did. Mm. So more now on the landmark ruling that I mentioned at the top of the programme and the decision by a senior judge in Australia to award damages of around £100,000 to a journalist at one of the country's most prestigious newspaper, the Melbourne Age, over a psychological injury that she suffered while covering dozens of murder cases, gangland violence in the city in the noughties and some graphic testimony during various criminal trials that she covered. Now, it's not the first time that a journalist attempted to sue their employer over occupational post-traumatic stress disorder, but it is the first time that anyone succeeded. Now, one of the issues that came up during the case was whether the age could have prevented the psychological injury if the paper had adopted the kind of peer support programme which some news organisations have in place. We've already heard a couple of months ago on Bang to Rights about the programme which runs at the Reuters News Agency. A little earlier, I spoke to Alison Ramage, who's editor of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's main TV news programme, about this case and also about the peer support programme which ABC has for its own journalists. Well, apparently it's a world first. This was an age journalist who's only known as, I think it's YZ was the, yes. the, the name she was known by in the court. And she sued the age newspaper, one of the biggest newspapers in Australia. She sued them for um, the post-traumatic stress disorder post-traumatic stress disorder that she suffered as a result of her work. She was um, initially a police reporter, so she was going out to horrific road accidents and murder scenes and so on. And then she later was um, the Supreme Court reporter, so she was reporting on the horrific evidence that was being heard in, in all these court cases. So that was meant to be an easier job they gave her as a result of her complaints but it ended up being even you know, just as bad for her. So she was awarded damages by the court in, in Victoria, and that's the first time that's ever happened. Another journalist did try this with the, with the same newspaper a few years earlier, but it was thrown out of court. So this woman, uh, being successful, has really raised a lot of eyebrows in Australia and made a lot of um, media organisations sit up and pay, pay attention. Now, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about specifically, because you... At the ABC, you do have a programme that kind of helps staff, uh, journalistic staff, particularly through some of these traumatic situations, don't you? Yeah, we've got a, a thing called the Peer Support Programme. It's been going for quite a long time, actually, about 10, 15 years. And it's a programme which is peer-to-peer, -peer, so journalists and camera operators and some managers they're volunteers. There's no special pay involved. And there's no, when I say there's no, they are trained, but when I say they're trained, they're not psychologists or, or um, counsellors as such, but they're given training in identifying trauma in colleagues. They're taught how to be empathetic and they're, they're taught listening skills. So these are people that if you've been out to a particularly traumatic story or you've been to a horrible crime scene and you feel you know, when you filed your story and you actually sit down and think about what you've seen, you feel you, you're, you can't handle it on your own. You can turn to these people and you can have a chat with them. You can talk on the phone or you can go for a coffee with them. And it's been really, really successful. I think it was a trial program initially and nobody knew how it would work out. But it's now regarded as one of the best in the industry here in Australia. And is it something that, I mean, you and I both know having worked on 
difficult news stories that quite often it's it's maybe hours or sometimes days afterwards before you kind of realize the emotional impact that it's had on you it's almost as if you're anesthetized for a couple of days and then then this thing can flood over you well that's right because you know when, when, when you're in the thick of it the adrenaline takes over and you're just focused on news gathering and filing and making sure that you get everything done often as you say it's a few days later or a few hours later or a few days later and you suddenly realize that you're not sleeping very well or you're having flashbacks to the things that you've seen and the people that you've spoken to so yes this is something that you can you can approach somebody on the day you can approach somebody the next day or you can approach somebody weeks and months later and they'll still give you a very sympathetic ear there's no time limit on it just as there's no time limit on trauma but i I, i've never actually used it myself but colleagues who have um they speak really really highly of it just having somebody who has been through similar situations, perhaps not the same story, but been through similar situations who can understand what they're going through the way a civilian counsellor, if you want to call them that, a civilian counsellor might not have that same understanding. And is there, I mean, I guess a lot of newsrooms are very similar and and journalists working in in fast-paced news do find that there's a kind of macho culture around some of this stuff and and particularly I guess the sort of received view of the the kind of macho matey culture in in Australia has it been a bit of a jump to for people to to take this up rather than being seen as being I don't know soft well I think that's something that's really surprised me as a Brit coming to live in Australia it does have this reputation as being very matey and blokey and quite tough but I think actually when you're when you really live here yes of course there's an element of that you know if you go to the pub you might come across that sort of um, that sort of attitude but newsrooms seem to be very well evolved here I'm very happy to say the journalist at the age maybe didn't have the same experience I've had but maybe it's something about working in broadcasting there's something more empathetic about it and people you know I really have found that people are very good at asking how are you are you are you coping and actually identifying those people who might not be dealing quite so well with traumatic situations I think the real the, the real thing I've noticed here is that we have a lot of stories happening here that go on for a long time. You know, bushfires are one of the things that mm-hmm. we report on on a regular basis. And the bushfire season, because of climate change, the bushfire season is becoming longer and longer. It used to just be a couple of months of the year, and now we're seeing bushfires all the year round. But they might not, they're not put out in a day the way a house fire is. These things go on and on for days and weeks at a time. And people really get fatigued by it. And it, it, it has a really sort of um, cumulative effect. And I've, I've noticed that when we, when we send, as a manager, when I send journalists out on these stories, they come back absolutely exhausted to the bone. And that's the, the point at which I feel I often have to step in and say, you can't go back out on that story tomorrow. You've got to take a couple of days off. And that's when I might refer them to the peer support program. One thing that's kind of struck me, I remember several decades ago now, I guess, maybe in the, in the early noughties, there were a number of news organisations were, were taken to court for, for physical damages over, over um, stress injuries, um, physical stress injuries um, from, from typing and, and keyboard and working at keyboards, mm-hmm. RSI injuries and so on. Yeah. And 
is the the fact that this has now happened to a news organizer at the age and that the the newspaper itself has been found liable for this do you think it's it's likely that we might be facing a moment when there is a there are either more cases like this or else there's a kind of acceptance that yes newspapers and news publishers and so on do have a duty of care towards the the mental welfare of their their staff as well as their physical welfare well i wouldn't be at all surprised if managers at higher levels than mine you know in the in the sort of boardrooms of organizations like the abc and the age newspaper are talking about this case it's a legal precedent that's been set and i wouldn't be at all surprised if those conversations are being had about you know this might be opening the floodgates to to similar claims which is why i would i would think that the abc is very happy it's got this peer support program set up because that's something i imagine that they would be bringing to the table if an abc journalist were to um, try and bring a similar case against the organization looking for damages alison ramage from from abc thanks to her as well for for coming on uh, a big thanks to ali um, for that I, I actually had to do the interview in a bit of a hurry and the studio was busy so i'll tweet a picture of the diy lash up that i had to use <laughs> to record that in the newsroom journal in the journalism staff room but but actually we're, we're doing the same thing here and we had to do the same thing with the joe yeah. stevens interview so uh, i hope my mobile journalism students will be impressed um but dave what what do you reckon about this this case i think it's interesting it's the second time that the age has been subjected to, uh, you know, this kind of claim. Actually, in this case, I think it, it may be the fact that this, these issues were flagged up uh, and because of the stress that she was under. And then, in fact, um, transferred against her will, effectively, it seems to me. Um, she asked not to be transferred back to the court reporting yeah. and to these traumatic cases. Uh, and so it seemed almost willful on the part of the employer, which may, of course, have had... Uh, you know, some bearing on, on the level of damages, etc. But, uh, you know, it's something we should all look at. I remember thinking back to when I was a journalist and uh, even, like, going back, you know, you talk about death knocks yes. uh, and yeah. having to speak to, you know, bereaved uh, people. Um, I, I was, um, you know, was once threatened with a BMP in my office and and um, the police came in and gave, you know, gave some uh, measures on how to keep myself safe, etc. So I think there has been some, um, you know, some movement forward, but um, I think as a profession, we're pretty kind of, yeah, have been pretty macho in the past and just get on with it and do it. And, you know, as long as you get the story, we're not really interested in what in how you, what happens to you. Just get the story. Yeah, yeah. So as as Alison said, the, the 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 atmosphere is changing in Australia, but I think globally it's changing as well to some extent. So if you want to hear some more of that um, and some more on the the, the Reuters peer support um, program. Uh, I'll, I'll tweet a link to the previous edition of, of Bang to Rights back in, I think it was early January, when uh, over, over the Christmas time when we spoke to um, people uh, about this. So we, we will almost certainly return to that. But for the moment, we have been Bang to Rights. Um, thanks very much, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts. And as usual, you'll find us on Stitcher. You can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. It's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. But Dave, just before we go, what's, what's NQ been covering this week? Well, so far, uh, Matt's been having running a live blog on, of course, the parliamentary uh, antics that yeah. we've been seeing. But tomorrow, we've got the climate change uh, protests in Manchester, so we'll be reporting live from there. So watch the uh, Northern Quarter Twitter feed. Absolutely. And so Ellie um, has promised to come. Uh, she's also going to be covering the, the ah. demonstrations, and she'll be back on on, uh, on Bang to Rights with us next week, I think, uh, with, with some more kind of in-depth reporting on that. But do, there'll be extensive coverage on the strike on Northern Quarter tomorrow and probably over 
over the weekend yes. and, and possibly into early next week. There's there's quite a lot. There's a large reporting team covering it. So do do please check that out. Finally, remember you can tweet at us at Rightspang. Follow us for updates about the podcast and any cases and stories we're following in the courts and in the news. And do please let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your from your reading that you want us to cover in any future editions. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you soon.